He used to write to make a living, but now he's writing to survive. The character Misery Chastain, who made him a best-selling author, is dead, allowing Paul Sheldon to move on from the current book series. But a car accident interrupts his plan, and he wakes up at the house of his biggest fan. When she discovers that her favorite writer killed off her dearest character, she is not happy. And you simply don't want any Wilkes mad. This is misery. A hazy memory pops off in Paul Sheldon's head. The memory of a woman giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and how smelly her breath was. He is thinking he will do anything on earth in order not to have that experience again. Now, waking up in her guest room, he hears her introduce herself, saying, I'm Annie Wilkes, and I'm... And he finishes off the sentence for her. I know, you're my biggest fan. As for him, he was Paul Sheldon, and he wrote two types of books, great ones and bestsellers. He was divorced twice, he knew that he smoked way too much, and as for right now, he also knew that he was in one hell of a jam. His mind clears up enough for him to realize he is at the ground floor in what appears to be a guest room in this woman's house, and then the woman herself comes into focus. Described by Mr. King as um, somebody of a body that was big, but not generous. I assume he means like her boobs were not like disproportionately large like compared to her waist. I don't know. She is further described as somebody who might not have any blood vessels, who is solid side to side and top to bottom. Every six hours, this very solid woman is going to bring him two pills. And what scared him, one of the many things that scared him about Annie Wilkes, is that the pills he would eventually realize were codeine. So they would keep him docile, he wouldn't know how long he would be out for, the side effects of the pills were constipation and limited breathing, meaning that she might have wanted to go back to giving him his mouth-to-mouth and bringing him back from the dead. You see, she didn't know as much about what she was doing as she thought she did. Let me introduce you to the one and only Kathy Bates, who would win an Oscar for Best Actress for this role, deservedly so. Like, the costume for Annie here is just chef's kiss. Just outside Silver Creek. You've been here two days. We will meet her the moment of CPR, the moment that is so heavily hated by Paul Sheldon in the book, when she gives him the mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, saving his life. Because Paul had been driving. 
He had been driving through the curves with the manuscript at the passenger seat of his car right after finishing the script for his latest book. He loses control of the vehicle and falls off the cliff. We see how Paul is saved. She single-handedly carries him somewhere while pocketing his manuscript in her coat. He believes she's a nurse because of her bedside manner. She takes dribble off his face as she's feeding him. She knows when to change his sheets in order for him not to get any sort of infection. She knows what meds to give him in order to knock him out and deal with his pain. And during those first few days, there is a valid explanation. The whole city had been snowed down, so there is not really a way for her to transport him to the hospital, and the phone lines were out, so she can't even ring anybody, she can't even alert his family. From Annie, we learned how she had gone into town to get food for the livestock. She had some cattle and uh, she had a pig that we will speak about later. She was thinking about him as she was driving into town and it just so happened that then she saw a car fall off a cliff. She obviously had to help him, had to do something because who is going to find whoever this person is. And just as she went down the cliff and managed to save him, get him out of the car, she looked at his wallet and his driver's license. And who does she see? Her favorite daughter. She recognized the name, she recognized the picture of him. And because of the way that he had screamed when she gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, she knew dying men don't scream. She knew that he was going to make it, he was going to live. As for his wallet, it's in the safe space somewhere in the house. Leaving Paul think that his whole life is outside of this room at this moment in time. From this moment also something shifts, as he kind of lies in order for her to possibly give him the wallet back so that maybe he can leave one day, the wallet would have, yes, his ID, so people will know who he is, and also would have some money in it. So he tells her that his dad always told him to keep an eye on his wallet, which was a lie, because his dad never gave two shits about him. But he knew from the look in Annie's eyes that he had to give her a good story, or she's about to snap. He asks her, about the meds and when he's going to get the next doses because his legs hurt a lot. She says, in an hour. And this is the first time that Paul looks down, down the bed at his legs and his feet. We see that both legs seem fractured. They're in some sort of makeshift cast. And Annie reassures him that as soon as the roads open, she will take him into a hospital. Until then, he's stuck with her. Detective Unit, there was a period in time in Stephen King's life, between like 87 and 92, when this man had a fixation. His fixation was about people being bedridden and going through some shit in their head, having hallucinations, trying to survive, doing their fucking best to deal with like a sociopath, probably psychopath, in the room. There was, I don't know what it says about him, right, first of all that they, this was his fixation. As you will learn when we discuss this book and go into like final thoughts, timestamp of the video, a lot of it is inspired from his personal life in terms of like, he was going through addictions. So like, it can be inspired from this way. I have a feeling he read about some weird fetishes as well. I just have a feeling. Cause like this book is followed by Gerald's game. So like this came out in like 87 and then Gerald's game in 1992. There was something else there. Mm, 
Stephen, why are you not telling us? Anyways, and then I don't know what it is about me, <laughs> but these two books in particular are the only fictional books of Stephen King that I have read. I've read his memoir that's called On Writing that mostly focuses on his technique and like how he writes, tips and tricks really, and before Misery that was my favorite book of Stephen King's. Which again, I, again, I don't know what the fuck it says about me that I read about somebody's description on how they write in order to actually then trust them enough to read their books. Maybe I just haven't found the right book by Stephen King before this, but this gem made me genuinely excited to be reading again. This book and the one that I will post a video on in December, probably the, not probably, they were the best books I have read in a long, long ass time. So first I watched the movie and I watched some people recap the movie. And the movie is good. The book is fucking excellent. And the main difference is, as I have spotted after first watching the movie, not having read the book, in the comments on those recaps, people were commenting how Annie Wilkes in the book is so much more crazy. And I was like, mm, a man writing about a crazy woman. How crazy can she be? Boy, boy, this book was good. This book, people were not lying in those motherfucking comments. No lies told. Then I thought, how can I portray the enjoyment that I felt the best? I will be recapping the book in order to do that, and then in the final thoughts part, I will tell you the differences between the movie and the book. Like, what the movie could have done more, could have had more of, it's mostly just more catty based as any Wilkes, but why I do believe it was the right type of adaptation, after all. Like, it was genius in its own way, how, like, so many things were different, but worked because of the visual representation, worked because of cinematography of it, whereas the book worked because, again, it was written like it was meant to be a book. I think, like, at no point, I don't know, actually, I don't think at this point Stephen King had any books that were adapted into movies. Maybe I'm wrong, because, again, clearly a fake fan. <laughs> clearly a fucking fake fan. But I think it's very clear that he wrote this book in a way, like, without ever thinking, like, oh, this would make a good movie because of this, and that's how you fucking write books. I think, like, this is where so many authors go so wrong, because they see a book adapted into a movie. I'm like, no, that's two different things. It should be two different scripts. Even, like, book-to-series adaptations, that's why so many don't work, because people write book. Like, people write books as if it's like, oh, cut to the scene. I'm like, no, what scene, bitch? It needs to flow. Okay, I sh I'm gonna stop losing it, okay? I just need to portray somehow how much I loved both of these things. And yes, I am the type of person who will stop, like, a movie to tell you, like, oh, this is how the book does this differently. I'm great to watch, like, Harry Potter movies with. <laughs> just, just so great. So I'm gonna do my best to try to stay away from that, recap the book, and then just tell you what the movie did differently. <sighs> Stick with me for the ride, I fucking love this shit. Okay, you're back in the room, right? Annie wants to read his manuscript, but we see this dynamic where, like, she's clearly holding him hostage. She clearly has his script. She can just read it without asking. However, she has so much respect for this man, for her favorite author, that she has to ask him. So she's back in the room with a shaving kit, and like as she's shaving his face, she says like she's still keeping to like try to 
get in touch with the outside world, get in touch with his daughters. However, the phones are still down, like she goes to town and still the phones are down. She kind of still is giving him like the illusions that she's trying to help. And this will abruptly stop, literally, like after a couple of chapters. She will just stop like all pretenses and he will know that he is stuck. She noticed the manuscript when she was saving his life, you know, the small, small feats that she does as his biggest fan. And the manuscript is called Fast Cars. So she knows it's not a misery novel. We learned that he had had a series of books under the name Misery, because there were no fast cars in the 18th century. And she just considers this to be a joke, like, oh yeah, I know this is not a misery novel, because there were no fast cars in the 18th century. And she starts laughing. She just loses her fucking shit. And this man is like literally there with his face being shaven by a woman that he by this point knows is Looney Tunes. He's a lunatic. This is not the same person. So far, only his agent and his editor would be allowed to read the manuscript before it would go to publishing. However, the times have changed. Now the people, well, everybody that saves him from a car wreck can also do so. To which Henry responds, I love you, Paul. I'm your... And Paul finishes, my number one fan. I know. That's it, exactly, Annie says, and she goes out of the room to read Fast Cars. The next time she reappears, uh, she's a bit angry. She's feeding him soup in complete silence. And by this point, he's kind of honing on to her moods, so he knows something is up. She admits she's only about 40 pages into Fast Cars, and she just is not happy about all of the swearing, all of the profanity that did not exist in the Misery books. She loses it. She spills the soup over him, saying that she loves him, like, will he ever forgive her? She loves his mind, she loves his creativity, but also then blames him for this, for all of the profanities and her spilling the soup, saying, like, look what you made me do. And she throws that plate of soup into the corner. Very, very swifty of her. Very, like, Taylor Swift with, look what you made me do. It's like, reputation, reputation. It's, it's all good. Listen, she on then, after throwing the soup into the corner, she laughs it off, saying, I have such a temper. And he says that he's sorry, to which she says, you should be. Has no nobility. stick to your misery stories. You didn't use such words in those books. Paul, by this point, knows full well that Annie is mentally unstable. He had done research on his characters before for the books, and she seems to be proving to go into, like, catatonic episodes and has sudden unpredictable bouts of rage. He kind of thinks by this point she might have some sort of psychosis where she has, like, periods of stability, and then something sets her off, and the unpredictability begins. You never know what Annie is about to do next. 
And as she lives in the middle of Earth's ass, Annie goes to town to get groceries. But also what she gets is the book that Paul recently published, and that was the last Misery novel. So the last Misery book in that series is called Misery's Child. And we are to assume she hadn't read this book up until now, that it was only recently published, and because she lives in middle of nowhere, like, this bookshop never actually had that book. She sleeps up also on the return home and says, like, oh, the phone in the town is working, but she did speak to the hospital, and as soon as the roads clear up, they will come for him. She also spoke to his agent, and nothing is making sense, because she clearly can drive into town, so the roads have cleared up. He knows that he is stuck there, it's just like she's still trying to save face and to have sort of like a facade, like, yeah, I'm doing my best to try to help you out. She then proceeds to wipe the soup marks, because, like, the soup is still, like, on the wall, on his bed, like, all over him, and he's crying at this point because she left him without the meds, so he's in huge amount of pain. She's cleaning the soup that she had spilled herself over the walls, blaming him for it. And she's doing it with, like, a bucket and, like, obviously soap and a sponge. And then she gets out of the room and she cleans that up and goes for the pills. And she gets three pills instead of two this time. She gives him the pills and then picks up the bucket and passes it on to him so that he swallows the pills with a bucket of soapy water. I love her. I love her. And she tells him to make sure, like, he doesn't pop those pills back up. Like, he better make sure to swallow those pills. So he does. He's doing everything in his head in order not to vomit, because he feels the soap. He feels what's happening. Like, it's like, just disgusting. And luckily, the effect of the pills takes over, and he manages to fall asleep. What I put in my script is, like, this scene should have definitely made it to the movie, because it would have made a character of Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates, could have definitely pulled this shit off, like, so much more of a nutcase from the get-go. Like, this is one of those scenes where I was like, no, this should have definitely had a visual fucking representation. This scene deserved to be in a movie. Anyways, Paul wakes up, and now he thinks of all of the fan letters that he would get. Many of them would write about the return of misery. It was always like, misery, 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 like those novels cannot stop. And he remembered that the profanity in particular bothered some of them, and some of those people called themselves his biggest fans. He remembers Annie's name also as if he had heard her introduce herself in a courtroom, but he can't remember anything else about that right now. We cut to Annie walking into his room the next time, and she walks in with a hog, like, with a pig. She says to him that it's time for him to meet her favorite beast of all time. Sistine Chapel and Misery's Child are the only two divine things in this world, she tells him, before proceeding to exit the room, oinking with a pig. Things 
next time that she feeds him, you find out she's reading the latest misery novel. She has completely given up on the Fast Cars manuscript. And uh, we learned that her husband actually left her. So she would drown into work. She would do late night shifts at the hospital. Like everything sort of to like disassociate from that divorce. And this is when she first discovered misery. She finishes the misery book and she gets into the room and she loses it. This time she's not like quiet, she's not silently feeding him soup, she outright loses it because she realizes that he had killed off her favorite character, Misery. She screams at him that she thought he was good, but he's no good, calls him a dirty bird, she throws the pitcher at him, it kind of slams against the wall, and Paul tries to justify himself, like, Women in 1871, when this misery book is said, would frequently die at childbirth. Like, her spirit will always... He doesn't even finish the sentence. She loses it, saying, like, I don't want her spirit. You are a god to the people in this story. God just happens to have a couple of broken legs and be in my house and eat my food. She slams the door, slams the door behind her, and leaves him. And she leaves him for 51 hours, for over two days, because he's no good for her. He has no food, no water, no, no one like cleaning his bed, no pills, no drugs for his pain. I thought you were good, Paul. But you're not good. You're just another lying old dirty anybody coming for you. Not the doctors, not your agent, not your family, because I never call them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. He knows just how long he had stayed in this bed because he opens up a drawer and there was a watch that was found on him, so he kept a tally of the hours. And this is very much like Stephen King going into Gerald's game, going into somebody uh, suffering through withdrawals of drugs and just hallucinating on their own. So here in this book, like, Paul thinks about his life, like, what if this mentally unstable person just lives forever? What if she decides in this hostage situation to possibly kill herself? Like, nobody will ever find me. So in this frenzy, he actually tries to, like, with his hands and kind of crawling, move towards the door. But he falls asleep again on the floor because he's exhausted, so she finds him at the door upon her return. She told him that uh, she had to get away to pray. She is going to give him the meds and relieve him of his pain, but first he has a job to do, and she wheels in a charcoal grill. She has the fire on the ready, she has the mattress on the ready, and she has his Fast Cars manuscript. Paul tries to convince her that this isn't the only copy of the book, but she is his biggest fan, if you remember, so she knows that he's lying, because he's actually superstitious. So, Paul wrote his first book at the age of 24, and he only wrote one copy because he believed nobody would read it. So, when it was published and sold, like millions and millions, this is a routine that he would follow in order to kind of, like, not jinx it, right? In order for 
for his next book and next book and the next one like to sell. So it's no avail. His only way to get drugs is to burn the manuscripts for past cars and as he does, as he throws the match into the charcoal grill, she's kind of like flustered by it. She's saying like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, and tries to like put water over it, but it's done. The manuscript is a goner. He has to return to misery. He doesn't know that yet. He doesn't fully understand what she wants out of him. But then she comes into the room with a wheelchair because in town she got him two presents. One of them is a wheelchair and the next one he's going to find out about tomorrow. As he is in and out of sleep, he thinks about what would happen if a police officer was to come around, like how Annie would probably act all normal, how she would serve them coffee and then follow them out. But he also thinks how he never heard like her watch news from her own room like or anywhere else in the house or mention anything that would mean she did and that she was alarmed. Like he doesn't know if she knows of like the news of his disappearance, if anybody had ever reported it or anything like that. And the problem was that she is hiding him in her guest room, feeding him a diet of meds instead of calling the police, getting an award for finding and taking care of a famous writer. This time around, if they put her on a stand, she will not walk free. The problem was she got rid of the manuscript and she will surely take care of him as easily. It is now tomorrow and we find out what the second present is. She got him a new typewriter because he didn't mean it when he killed off Misery, when he killed off her favorite character. He should just write. He needs to make it all right. And it's going to be a book in her honor. He's going to make her famous. He's going to make her the envy of the whole world because this is how it works in her brain. She's keeping him hostage. However, he needs to dedicate a book to her and be like grateful to her that he's a famous actor all over again. Even when she read that part of Misery's death, she knew that she wasn't really dead because he's good. He's good. Paul Sheldon is good and he needs to bring misery back to life. But he can't, he can't cheat his way out of it as he's about to learn very soon. A side note here, right? In the movie, as she walks in with the typewriter, he's hiding the meds in the hole that is like just in his mattress. So like he dug out a hole where to hide his meds. So every time she gives them, like he basically keeps them under his tongue and then like spits them out. In the book, he's heavily dependent on the meds, on this invented medication called Novril. And only towards the end of the book, is he going to like try actively not to take them and suffer through withdrawals once he thinks of a plan and like sort of like tries to deal with any in his own way. At this moment in time now he knows what he needs to do. He needs to bring misery back to life. So he asks Annie, if I write this novel for you, will you let me go once done? To which Annie replies, you speak as if though I'm keeping you a prisoner. I think by the time you finish, you should be up to strength to meeting people again. What impressed me about Stephen King's writing here in particular is that Paul Sheldon notices each time that they speak about technicalities or writing or just like 
comparisons of different typewriters and why this one works better or worse than some of the others, she doesn't care for it because she's fully only invested in the story. Characters are the only things that are real to her, that matter to her. Like, Misery's death was real to her, and Misery being reborn again is going to be, like, very real, as if it's, like, a real person that matters to her. And all of the books are trashy romance novels, just adding to the eeriness of how unhinged she is, that, like, these literally, like, romance novel people are so, so real to her, as if they're, like, her real-life friends, real-life love interests. It's, I don't know, the way that I have put it, it in my head, it's as if, like, somebody is holding your telenovela writer hostage and making them write up a story, or, like, holding Nicholas Sparks hostage and, like, write another notebook, write another fucking notebook with a different type of ending. They cannot die in the end. I think they die in the end, right? It's like, yeah, all, like, they die of, like, old age somewhere, all at the same time, like, as if. Nicholas, Nicholas, we gotta talk, you ruined my fucking childhood, and, like, none of those couples in any of your books should have ended up together. Are you okay? Is he married? Is he okay? Every single time we go back to our man okay. And he now puts his wheelchair, mm -hmm, wheels him, onto the window. He says, like, another one of his superstition is that the typewriter has to face the wall, but he does this in order to assess his situation, in order for him, because they're at the ground floor, to look outside, you know, for him to see, like, the surroundings, are any cars passing by, is there anything else nearby, and he will usually find out that he is very stuck, but, like, at least he can look outside as he just starts typing. Another thing that he notices, because there's no cars passing by and there's only, like, a barn in the yard, but appearances still matter to Annie at this point. And at this point, like, I feel like that represents her mental state of mind, because everything is in pristine, pristine condition. Like, if anybody was to pass by, it's exactly done in that way of, like, oh, if police officer just comes around, she's just gonna make them coffee, she just lives here in the middle of fucking nowhere, and there's nothing wrong about that, because her house is in pristine condition, the garden, and sort of, like, the yard and everything is just all very clean and very polished, right? Nothing wrong there. And then... Paul looks down at the floor and sees a hairpin, because, of course, in this whole prim and proper world, like, she has always her hair done. However, she didn't notice that one of her hairpins had fell off. So he thinks, key, right? I need to somehow figure out how to work this hairpin. But first, I need to figure out how to grab it off the floor without her noticing that her hairpin had fallen off. So he looks at his table, like, what else can I do? Like, I have the printing, typing paper, right? And I have the typewriter, like, I have technically everything for me to do my work. If she gives him even a notepad as well, like, for him to write notes. So he calls her back in and tells her that this typing paper is no good, that it will leave the smudges. And uh, he shows her that, you know, he types up a couple of words and then pulls the paper out and just puts his finger over it, and it surely does leave the smudges. So he needs her to go back into town to get him the new batch of typing paper, which she's pissed, she's pissed, but she obliges. 
She tells him, while I'm getting your paper, think about how everyone else thinks I got away with it. Again, implying that she has committed some crimes before, that he might know what they are, or might eventually remember them, but like, kind of implying like she had killed before and she will not hesitate to do it again. And this is again where I put a side note, like, why not include this into the movie? Because, like, after reading the book, after the movie, like, some of the dialogues were just word by word. Kathy Bates just stating, like, word by word what was written in the book for Annie Wilkes. And a lot of them were, like, excluded and some of them really, really fucking should not have been because it kind of always gives us this idea that, like, she is unhinged and she might kill again and she might have killed in the past, as we will learn later. Once she is gone, he goes to the floor, picks up that hairpin and uses it to unlock the door. And this is when he wheels around the house and finds that, again, it's everything tidy, pristine, looking clean as fuck, like, kind of, like, OCD type. And he finds a cupboard where she stores insane amounts of pills. Like, this is apothecary, okay? This is apotheca, this is pharmacy mine. <laughs> it's like, no, remember the word in every single language but English. So he sneaks some. He kind of tries to figure out which one maybe she will not notice, and he sneaks some in his underpants and then puts them under the mattress. He makes a note, though, of just the sheer amount of the medication, thinking, like, how does she have any of those? As all of them like, need to be prescribed by a physician. Neither of those meds are over-the-counter meds. Rolling back into his room, just as she parks outside, he is, like, breaking in sweat because, like, this has taken insane amount of effort. By she comes in, brings him the paper, she notices and she kind of attributes it to his withdrawals, to, like, the lack of meds, so she gives him some more. And at this point in time, she doesn't figure out, you know, about his excursion outside, none of that. He starts writing the book that is called Misery's Return. He writes during the day, at night, Annie goes into his room, picks up the chapters, she reads them, she's his editor, fully, like, in charge of making comments on this book. So, one day, after a couple of chapters, she goes in and she is not happy because he's cheating his way out. It's not right. She appreciates that he had named the nurse after her. However, it is just not right. He can't cheat misery back to life. So, what is he to do? He's just, like, confused, but then we have time to be confused because this is one of those cult scenes from the movies, because she loses it again. She tells him a story about when she was a child going to watch serial films, so, like, chapter plays. She was disappointed with a cliffhanger, as the serial never picked up from that last scene. So, they chose a predictable way to end it, and everybody was, like, happy, people were applauding in the cinema, but she was not. She was not happy. She started screaming. So cinema, the cinema staff came in, threatening to take her out. But Annie would not stop. She was not happy with just how this serial film had ended. Anyway, my favorite was Rocket Man. And once it was a no-breaks chapter, the bad guys stuck him in a car on a mountain road, knocked him out, welded the door shut, and tore out the brakes, and started him to his death. 
and he woke up and tried to steer and tried to get out, but the car went off a cliff before he could escape, and it crashed and burned, and I was so upset and excited. And the next week, you better believe I was first in line, and they always start with the end of the last week. And there was Rocket Man trying to get out, and here comes the cliff. And just before the car went off the cliff, he jumped free, and all the kids cheered. But I didn't cheer. I stood right up and started shouting, This isn't what happened last week. Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us. This isn't fair. He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car. They always cheated like that in uh, Jackie's place. But not you. Not with my misery. Remember, Ian did ride for Dr. Cleary at the end of the last book, but his horse fell jumping that fence, and Ian broke his shoulder and his ribs and lay all night in the ditch, and he never reached the doctor, so there couldn't have been any experimental blood transfusion that saved her life. Misery was buried in the ground at the end, Paul, so you'll have to start there. Paul now knows he needs to bring this character back to life in a way that she will not find as an easy way out, and just a cop-out for him to finish the book earlier, or he's dead. So we go into Misery's Return to learn a bit about what he's writing. The book's would center, so the whole Misery series, on a love triangle involving Misery as well as two men that were named Ian and Joffrey. I think in the movie Joffrey is named Winthorn, something like that, and the two men are best friends. Through the book it's obvious how much Paul hated this series, which is why he ended it, which is why he killed off Misery. So in Misery's Child, he kills off Misery at childbirth. Inside of the new book, Annie is now reading about Misery's memorial service. How people, especially a grave digger, are hearing sounds as if Misery is trying to get back from the dead. And to calm himself down, one of her love interests is now at the graveyard to prove the grave digger and himself wrong. So the premise is that Misery had been buried alive while comatose. And because they heard the voices, men from the village realize what if she is indeed alive, the only way to prove it is to dig up her body. So they do exactly that. They dig a grave a whole eight inches deep. And once they do, Misery is indeed alive. She's saved and she had no idea who they were, so it's kind of insinuated maybe she has lost her memory, she has amnesia. Upon finishing these chapters that he had written, Annie comes into his room, he asks her, is it fair? She says yes, and it's good, but it's gruesome too. It's not like any other misery books. Shall I go on? He asked. I'll kill you if you don't, she says, just smiling, just chill vibes, chill vibes all around. You won't have to kill me, he says. I want to go on. One person in a dozen is allergic to bees, Annie tells him, kind of offering it as an advice of like how to pull this off, right? Like how to explain to the people why she was buried alive, why did they think she was dead in the first place? And she goes red in the face, kind of like almost smitten, like, oh my god, like imagine if he uses this and he uses me as his inspiration. A bee could have been the cause for the live burial. He already has ideas in mind, but he says, like, thank you, Annie, you know, I'll think about it. Again, she didn't think about how another woman 
dying in the book due to a bee sting would make this not a plausible plot, right? Because apparently there's another person that died because of a bee sting, and he's like, well, how do I now have this not be a cop-out? But we also just see, like, how Annie only cares about misery. She does not see any other character, she doesn't see the flaws, she doesn't see the flaws in techniques, she doesn't care about any of that, the same way that she didn't care about the typewriter or the writing paper. The next day she comes into his room with the handcuffs. She ties him to a bed and puts a rag into his mouth. This is one of those genius moments <laughs> where Stephen King makes you feel the disgustingness of the book. It's like, ugh, having like a piece of carpet in your mouth and like how dry and disgusting and like all of the flavors, like how nasty that would be and like how scared you would be and also just having that in your mouth like not to make any noise. So like he doesn't know what the fuck is going on, but we do because there is a man in the front of Annie's yard that she is going to try to get rid of. She goes back into the room and this is where in my own script I named the chapter Bills, 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 like the Destiny's Child song, like can you pay my automobiles? Mm -mm -mm. She goes back into the room and she rants. 10% tax increase, overdue, cackadoo, dirty bird, $506. Basically, she forgot to pay the bills. She's in arrears. And he here notices, Paul does, that she keeps forgetting things, right? Things start moving forward where, like, her psychosis might be progressing. She didn't change calendar dates. That is something that he noticed when he was wheeling around the house the last time. That, like, there was a calendar on the wall and they were still, like, a few months behind. So, like, she doesn't, like, really maybe even know, like, what month we are in. Now she's forgetting to pay the bills. Like, the psychosis is escalating. The mental illness is escalating. He, however, offers now, when she takes the rag out of his mouth, which was so beautiful and disgusting, to pay for the bills. He still has some money in the wallet. And he does this as a token of his appreciation. She brings him in the wallet, and this is when he notices that his ID is gone, but the money is still there. Kind of implying, like, what is she, what is she doing with his ID? Because it has his picture on it. Like, is she, you know, doing something in her room behind closed doors? But also that she would not steal from him, willingly. Like, the same way with the manuscript, that she respects him in somewhat of a way where she will not read his own manuscript without permission or take his money without his permission. As he cries a bit, he hands her over the money and she touches his lips, saying that she loves him. Bills, 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 can you pay my automobiles? Can you pay my automobiles? Bills, bills, bills. Three weeks go by, and Paul is averaging 12 pages a day. And he can't help but think, like, somewhat, like, yeah, this is a crazy situation. Like, would I love to remain a hostage to this woman? No, but this is also why I can't be this productive. He realizes he is able to write this many pages because he isn't drinking, he isn't just smoking all day long, bar hopping, picking up women. There are no bad habits causing him to stop writing throughout the day. And he also gave him a notepad, and we see that he uses it for the notes for the novel, but also he uses this notepad in order to crush the pills and then put them sort of like as a pill powder 
in this satchel that he had made out of paper, just in case if he has the opportunity to maybe knock her out and then possibly escape. So what's next for the story? Isery was out of her grave, but where is the fucking story? The only way to make the bee allergy plotline plausible, Paul realizes, is if he makes misery and that other person that had bee allergy and died related. So, sort of like, they're cousins and this is why bee allergy works the same for them. Don't know. It's book within a book. It's Inception. Stephen King is rocking this shit. I'm literally just giving you the spark notes of the story. He kind of knew how to drive the plot along, and he shared this bee discovery with Annie, you know, like making him put him into the wheelchair and roll him back to the table immediately because he was so excited about it. So she is psyched about that as well. But then the weather changes. It goes to rain, like rainy days nonstop every single day. And Eddie's mood is now changing. He notices that she's going a bit nuts, like even for Annie. Like behind closed doors, as he's locked into her room, he would hear slaps, like as if somebody is possibly slapping Annie, like across the cheeks. But knowing that it's only him and her in that house, this would mean that this woman is slapping herself. This is what I mean. Sometimes this book is horrifying, and then sometimes I'm just like, oh my god, this do be a bit funny. He remembers limited knowledge that he had researching for a character with mental health issues. Knowing that people start self-punishing when they go deeper into psychosis or depression, and this is when he starts being, like, really scared for his life, because he also knows the book is progressing. Now he had brought her back to dead. The only part that he has to write now is like, oh, which man is she going to choose, right? Is she going to choose Ian or Joffrey? Like, who will be the love interest that she ends up with? The next time that she comes into the room, she comes in with a rat. She's holding him by his neck and she has a mouse trap in her other hand. He also notices, Paul does, that like her clothes are inside out. There's splatters of food on her clothes. So, like she probably isn't like even washing the laundry at this point. However, what he's scared of is what the fuck is she going to do with a rat and a trap? She tells him humans are just like a rat in a trap. She puts the rat from one hand into the trap, breaking his back. And the rat is squealing. He still isn't dead, however. He doesn't know how to escape. So she takes him by the neck, kills the rat, and throws him into the corner of the room, like splattering his blood all over the wall. I'll get my gun, Paul. And he says, maybe the next world is better for rats and for people. She then proceeds to leave the room while sucking the red blood off of her fingers. She just wants to know how Misery's return ends. I was scared, guys. I was really, really fucking scared at this point. I was so scared for our boy, Paul Sheldon. How many people were scared? Really, really scared. Paul, things are getting weird around here. Like, you better finish this fucking book. She's slapping herself. She's licking the red's blood, Paul. Like, this can't be healthy. Licking red's blood, like, you probably get, like, some fucking liver disease or some shit. It can't be healthy. Okay, in the book, right, we find out that she goes to what she calls her laughing place. 
But this is just a random place in a village uh, where people don't hear her scream. <laughs> this is where she was coming from when she found him in the snow. Like, totally chill vibes, totally chill energy. Maybe she has gone there at this point, because yes, she again leaves the house and Paul has no idea for how long she's gonna be gone. He thinks to himself, who said she didn't leave me anything to eat this time? Looking at the rat in the corner of the room and the blood splattered on the wall. At this point, he starts laughing himself. He goes out of the room again using the hairpin and he founds the house in a completely different state this time around. The house is in disarray, plates are unwashed, there are smears on the sheets and there's just opened packages of food that she would be binging on. He left that room at this point with the idea of escaping, but then he sees like puddles outside because it was raining and he knows he's stuck. Before he goes back into the room, something calls his attention in the living room. There was like an open scrapbook of sorts with some pictures inside. So he wheels himself in and flips through what Annie named Memory Lane. This brings us to definitely my favorite part of the book. The movie as well, but the book did this part just so much more justice. We find out so much more information because this scrapbook tells us a story about Annie's life. It has Annie's birth announcement. She was born in April, on April Fool's Day, to be exact, and that doesn't just uh, pass Paul Sheldon by, just like, oh, the laughing place, April Fool's Day, everything makes sense in this bizarre, psychotic world of this woman. She's just about 44 right now, and the book mentions more newspaper edits of a house fire when Annie was 11, so her crime career started earlier than people even thought, how her dad died by tripping over clothes. Then there was another freak accident article when Annie was at uni. The nursing student died in a freak fall. It was a bizarre accident and the witness, the only witness to it, was her flatmate another nursing student, Annie Wilkes. Annie heard a scream and she was too late. Her friend tripped over a cat and then just flew out of the window, you know, just how it usually happens. Accidents happened years apart in two different towns, so like her dad dying and then this nursing student dying, so nobody really connected the dots. And it kind of proves like maybe she is smarter than a lot of people gave her credit for, especially like Paul Sheldon, like who underestimated her big time until this point. Then the saga continues. He sees a graduation picture. Annie Wilkes graduated with honors, but the pattern was inescapable. She would get a job, kill some people, and move on. And she killed them because they were rats in the trap. She moved westward, a welcome aboard article would follow, and then two or three unremarkable deaths. Cycle continued until she was in Denver, which is where we see a wedding picture and would be her own wedding. The husband, Paul, cannot stop thinking, looked a lot like the picture of Annie's father that he had seen. The chances are that in the next few pages there will be an article about his husband dying. But this doesn't seem to happen. It seemed like she stopped killing when she married this man. But the pressure is building up. He sees an article about a divorce after a short illness. Then another welcome article into another hospital, after which she turned crazier. 
long illness followed by short one, long, short, long, long, pages on pages on infant deaths were commemorated in this scrapbook. He's thinking how many did she kill? Counting some of them, it would seem more than 30 people by 1981, without authorities figuring out. In 1982, she finally stopped, and she was pronounced the head maternity ward nurse. It would only be when she began killing healthy along with the sick that investigation would finally be launched. In the movie, the newspaper cutouts and the books were so well done. I just have to put that in because you would see that she kind of had like bookmarks of sorts, portraying like babies or writings, like saying another baby as she was literally sickeningly commemorating her own kills. Paul reads about the arrest as all of the infant's health would worsen after visits to her. She went on trial, there were eight counts of first-degree murder, and it seemed like hanging was too good for her. She was monikered the Dragon Lady by this point, and the name would stick. I looked into the Dragon Lady a bit. I think the original Dragon Lady was like an empress of China from the 19th century, and since that point on, it is used like as a moniker to refer to somebody who is alluring, dominating, mysterious. Kind of, yes, like Annie Wilkes, but it doesn't always have that much of a negative connotation, at least from what I have seen. It's more like it's a dangerous woman, which is technically what she is, and there are movies and series made alluding to, like, Dragon Lady and with different people, like, portrayed as such. Now, the defense here, right, because prosecution's case was only circumstantial, the defense would show dozens of other occasions where Annie was the head of the ward and the kids would go in and they would go out and nothing would happen to them. She wouldn't go to the funerals, rather she was pictured in her cell, reading Misery's Quest, one of Paul Sheldon's Misery novels, waiting for her verdict. And the verdict would be that the dragon lady was found innocent. These would just be a couple of pages, so Paul is thinking, like, is everything commemorated? Do we even know the full victim count at this point? The next page, then, he flips over, and there was a man after her verdict that seemed to have been killed somewhere nearby, like, close to where she lived now. And he's thinking how, when he was wheeling around the house, he saw an axe put into, like, a tree trunk, basically, like, placed somewhere, and how, what if she had used this axe as a murder weapon? It's just Stephen King planting seeds for the later. And what if, what if the laughing place where she fucks off to, maybe where she is right now, was the burial site for this man, for somebody else? And then he flips to another page, and he sees his face and his name. There was an article on him being reported missing, and to him it felt like he was pronounced dead. He still has a whole day to wheel around the house at this point, so he is kind of nicking some food so that he doesn't stay hungry. He's taking, like, sardines in the book, which I'm like, surely that shit smells. Like, it's fish. It smells. Like, she will surely notice if you just eat some sardines. Where are you hiding the cans? That just isn't fucking explained. And he thinks, like, where he can put the peel powder, so he's fully, like, checking places and thinking, like, what should I poison? Like, what do I do? Like, so that I knock her out. And where she wouldn't notice it by taste. 
One idea was possibly for him to like suspend the typewriter on kind of like top of the door so that when she walks in it falls onto her but he's like how the fuck do I do that from the wheelchair? So he settles on an idea where he goes into her drawer and takes the knife and then goes back into his room and puts the knife underneath his mattress. Paul falls asleep and as he's back to being awake, he notices that Annie is at the bottom of his bed. And during this whole conversation that he now embarks on with Annie, he hears always that there is something happening in his leg area. As if something is being put in between his legs and there's some commotion like the bed is clinking and clanking in that spot. However, what woke him up was the fact that he was now fully tied, like whole of his body is just tied to the bed and he knows this is an immediate threat, she is pissed. So it seemed like he forgot to lock the door, right, like with a pin when he was back in and she figured out that he was out snooping about, then she checked a couple of areas. She noticed that the knife was missing, she found him underneath his mattress. She noticed that the book had been flipped through because she had a bookmark, she had like a thread, so like if you open up a book in certain spots like that thread moves, you know, like how in the movie it is portrayed with those little bookmarks, that's it, genius, genius. So she knew, she knew exactly where he had been, but she wants to get those answers from him. How many times did you, how many times did he go out, she asks. He lies, thinking the knife is still under the mattress, but then she shows him the knife. And at this point, he just starts laughing. Like all of this work happened for nothing pointing that knife at him, Annie is shrieking at this point. Yes, this might have floated here by itself, the meds. She explains why she actually has all of those pills, that she would bring some of the samples home as she was a nurse, she was just cheating. What else did he see? Because he clearly saw like the memory lane book, because now he knows that she's a nurse, so that's why she's explaining herself. She isn't waiting for answers though. She keeps going on about how no one will find his car, because that is where she had gone to make sure that the car isn't visible if somebody looks down. And he's constantly, like, as she's venting and screaming and shrieking, hearing something being put near his legs. But he's tied to the bed, so, like, his torso and his chest is also tied, so he can't lift his head up to see. In the movie, Annie is just incoherently going from one topic to the next, and then she proceeds to put a wooden block between his legs, and she just crashes them. I skipped through this scene because I don't like scenes of torture, right? So in the uh, book, I was listening to the audiobook, I will admit, I'm a lazy bitch, I know. I skipped for like 30 seconds, and when I unpaused, guys, she had his foot in her hand at the door. And I was like, what the, wait, what? This doesn't happen in the fucking movie. She cut off his foot. Yeah, um, she cut it with like an axe and then she cauterized the ankle with a blowtorch. She like hobbled him and before she's a nurse, quote unquote nurse, fucking killer nurse. She, um, yeah, made sure that that area is basically not infected. So she cauterized it. I'm so scared. This is where I was just like, okay, no, this isn't, this isn't okay. And you were my bestie, you did nothing wrong, and then you did everything wrong. 
Now you might think she's crazy, right? There's red blood on the wall, there's a red on the floor, there is a foot of a man in her hand. You might make those deductions. You don't know crazy, you don't know crazy. She's not done cutting off limbs of his body. So um, he makes a typo because now, right, like he has to take insane amounts of medication to even proceed writing this book. He, I think, falls asleep on the job or makes a typo, something like very fucking minor. She comes into the room with what he knows is going to be like a homemade anesthetic, so a syringe, and he starts screaming. At this point, he's petrified of hers. He's just in that wheelchair in front of his typewriter, scared, shitless. He starts screaming and she says like, yeah, you better stop, like you can have this one way or the other. She plugs in like an electric cutter in the socket that is near him, that is by the wheelchair, and she cuts off his left thumb. That's not it. She then proceeds to make a cake and puts... She comes back into the room with a candle, one of the candles being his thumb. And she says, well, happy birthday. She sings the happy birthday song to him. He knows it's not his birthday. He knows that he better listen or she's going to make him eat the special candle, as she calls it, which is his thumb. This is also the part where I have to make a side note and say the movie could have portrayed it better, just in terms of like visuals, right? Like blood smeared on the wall, the sheets soaked around the house, the whole messiness of it the, like, different sheets soaked with blood because of the leg. Like, I kind of understand, like, they didn't want to go fully into the horror style of things, because, I don't know, after reading, I think, like, the book is mostly genuinely, like, horror. Yeah, it's psychological thriller, but there are some parts that are just, like, yeah, horror, like, fully on psycho. And the movie probably didn't want to go into that avenue. It was more just, like, a psychological level, but then there's some parts that, like, Oh my god, would they have, would have worked so much better as visuals. This man is now without a foot, without a thumb, just hobbled and like writing for his captor. And at first he convinces her, like when she's bathing him and bringing him back to life, that he can do it, like at least leave me like 15 minutes to write during the day. And as she does that, like, you can see that he is now fully, like, hallucinating because of the amount of mess that he's taking, like, the itchiness of the stub, like, where his foot used to be, reminds him of the bees that he had envisioned for the plotline of this story. This is something also where, like, I feel the movie could have portrayed it better, just visually, you know, the soaked sheets, the messiness of the house, her losing control and, like, composure. I think the book and um, the movie did like a very different version of Annie's mental state. In the book you see like a clear demise, you see spiraling like from one thing to the next, it's like a clear progression of somebody's mental illness, whereas the movie keeps her all like, have her front and still be as clean and pristine, prim and proper like to the public while she's actually just going through shit inside of her head. I don't know, I thought like that was interesting. I assume the movie didn't want to be just full horror and just as gory as the book ended up being. 
Annie, who at this point had read some of his pre-surgery work and had written some of her own endings, comes in with a Sunday, and she tries to like be super nice and milk like the ending from him, and he says like, no, you wouldn't respect me in the morning if I were to tell you the ending. At this point, she's issuing threats, but he knows that she will keep him alive. Like, yes, maybe another part of his body is gonna go, but she needs him conscious enough to write, and she wants this book to be written at this point, so hopefully she's gonna hold off, like, the torture for now. After his thumbectomy, the single best accomplishment that he had had at this point was counting the days. And one such day, as he's trying to focus, he sees through the window a state trooper parking his car. And he starts screaming. There's no control, there's no second port. He starts screaming. There's an ashtray that has not been used here for months, because it's not like she's letting him smoke, that he throws at the window, and he's just trying to do his best to alert of his existence in this house. He thinks he's about to be saved, but Annie saw this man too. She goes behind the state trooper and knocks him the fuck down. She knocks him down with a cross that we learn had been used at a funeral or one of Annie's animals that apparently Paul had witnessed during his time here, because at this point it has been months. So she knocks him out before he even got to the house. This state trooper somehow survives, and he goes for his holster. He takes out the gun, and he shoots in her direction, but she ran away. And you would think, like, maybe she's gone somewhere. No. She goes to the shed, and then, like some motherfucking psycho, she jumps on one of those ride-on lawnmowers, and it's giving graphic, it's giving sick to my stomach, Paul himself vomits while witnessing this scene through the window, but she runs him over. Body parts everywhere. His blood under the lawnmower in those blades. She cleans up this crime scene while he's watching everything, and she's just blaming him. She goes back in to, like, give him food and give him the message. She's fully, like, ranting, blaming this on him. Had he not screamed, she would have just sent him on his way. He sees everything. He sees her clean everything up. He sees her clean up the mower, but not the blade underneath. So... He knows she's getting more and more forgetful, but at some points, like, right, this is good if she gets discovered, because they will know and, like, have more crimes to connect to her. When she next comes into his room, he said, with as much dignity as possible, just go ahead and kill me. But she doesn't. Instead, she brings him with his wheelchair to the basement door. And here she says, like, you have five seconds to decide. Are you going to piggyback, or am I pushing you down the stairs? He chose his piggyback, and she brings him down, and he's like, Annie, please don't let me stay here. He hears the rats. It's disgusting. It's humid. It's a nasty-ass basement. But she just puts him on some fucking shitty-ass mattress, and then she gives him a lowdown of what she's about to do, because she knows that somebody else is going to follow this state trooper. They're going to check up on him, and it's just a matter of dates. 
She tells him that they're going to be alright by the dark before someone comes to check on the trooper and she has a gun ready for them. She has to bring the body to the laughing place to dispose of it. She's going to leave the note in the mailbox as she's gone, that she's just like gone to this place and she will be back, basically like having a whole alibi ready. And next time the men come around, there will be at least two, Annie says that she can handle them. If they see Paul, however, she will take the gun out of the bag and she's going to start shooting, so he better remain quiet this time around or there are more people that are going to die. She also prepared the story when these men come around, they're going to ask her, has she seen the officer? And she will say, yes, she did. And how they showed her the picture of Paul Sheldon and she told them that she knows him because she's his biggest fan but she doesn't believe they will come to search the house, not at first, so maybe she can buy them a week between this point and possibly them coming inside of the house or possibly even having a search warrant. She asks him, can he write faster? Like, how much longer does he need to finish Misery's return? And he says, I see the ending, and one is very sad. You wouldn't kill her, would you? What will he do? Kill me, Paul says. You're writing one of the endings yourself, Annie. She goes now, we presume, to the laughing place to dispose of this officer, leaving him in the basement. He isn't writing, but she didn't even leave him with a notepad. She doesn't trust him, like she knows that she needs to be in the house for him to write. And this is where, in the basement, as he's again in and out of hallucinations, she had kind of left him like a syringe for him to inject into himself, but at this point he knows. It's the final countdown, he can't, like, possibly be dependent on drugs and also try to survive. So in the corner of this basement, he notices that fire pit, like the barbecue grill, right, where she made him burn the Fast Cars manuscript. And underneath it, he notices a can of lighting fluid. So he crawls from his mattress to the lighting fluid, hides it into his underpants. And when Annie is back, he goes on to piggyback again. And when she puts him into the bed in the guest room, he hides the lighting fluid underneath the mattress. He knows he's going to have to move it from there because now she knows that he hides shit under the mattress. So as she goes out to get him the meds, and as he goes back to writing, he found a loose board on the floor, and this is where he would put the lighting fluid. Now we got TikTok on the clock. He makes Annie promise that she's not going to take the chapters out of his room to read them at night anymore, not until he's done. That way, the conclusion is going to have a lot more punch, and she is obsessed with this idea, and obviously, like, she's preoccupied because there's more and more people coming to her door, and she is definitely not fucking used to having visitors. So, state police is in front of her yard next, and Paul is just in the guest room at this point. They actually go into her house, but it's just like, oh, a routine check. So it is just as she predicted. She manages to, like, make them coffee, just chats with them, and they ask to actually go into the barn, which I'm like, why the fuck not go around the house, stupid motherfucker? They go into the barn, and this is where they meet her pig that is called Misery. I don't know if I mentioned that, but yes, the pig is named after the favorite character. And his next set of guests, like right as this man goes on his way, is a couple of reporters. There's a reporter and the cameraman, and uh, Annie loses it here. <laughs> she 
gets the gun and like shoots into the sky and uh, obviously they fuck off because they're scared for their motherfucking lives. Annie is screaming at this point, like after the reporters, she goes into the room and says like, do you know what I want? She slaps herself left and right and runs out of the room. At this point she's like fully self-punishing herself and she's just like slapping herself left, right and center. Next day, another police officer comes in and this time she repeats the same story, but she has those marks and scratches because she's like giving herself like a bit of a slapper. And uh, he kind of asks, like, oh, what are these due? And she just invents that it's due to nightmares. So she goes back into this room, and at this point, we've got the deadline, because she's asking him, like, how much longer? And he says he's going to be done in two days. Paul Sheldon knew he never did it for her. The dedication is always a front for every writer. Every time that he would start writing, he did it for him. For the best-selling titles. For the interviews that he would get for the applause. I thought this part was so fucking good. Because every time, like, I don't know how many times, not every time, right? But how many times have you opened up the book and read the acknowledgements, like, dedication, I dedicate this to whatever, and you're like, such bullshit, right? Or, like, heard an Oscar acceptance speech and we're like, ugh, just as if. Like, how many people are you thanking? And, like, how many of those are just fake? How many of those are just like, oh, because you kind of felt obligated to thank those people? Because like, yeah, of course, like, mom and dad, what, were they support? Like, did they read this? Were they your editor? Mm. Like, how many of these dedications would be fake? And like, in how many cases do the writers, just as Stephen King says here, do it purely for themselves? The next day, they have another set of visitors here. The teenagers drive by, screaming, like, where did you bury him? So we kind of know that the news are spreading. News is spreading? You studied journalism, I am. <laughs> Tomorrow, she's going to have the book. It's a final day. Misery's return is about to be finished. We have that I love you, Paul. That is the iconic scene in the movie where she tells him that, like, before she liked his writing or she liked his talent, but this time around she actually likes him as a whole. She loves him for everything that he is. She loves him as a person. That is crazy behavior, considering he never ever even, like, dicked her down. You don't, you don't even know if the dick is good. Don't love anybody like that. Okay. The next day... The next day his right hand is almost swollen, and this is never explained because I feel like she cut off his left thumb, I'm led to believe, from the book. So I don't know if it's like circulation, like the blood is just not flowing because like, well, he has been tortured by this woman, but he has to push through. He also has like a urinary infection. There's a bunch of shit going on with Paul at this point, but like he tells her he's going to have the book by tonight. She came into the room with a surprise though, and she's like, oh, I don't know if you like, like things like this, but she brought caviar in. And he just is eating it, he's like, no, I don't care, but he bursts into laughter, just at the absurdity of it. And this time around she laughs with him, and it's like madness all around. There's another surprise, though. She has Don Perignon, as she will call it in the movie, which I just thought was an iconic scene. Don Perignon. Iconic. For them to celebrate the book end. And there is something that he wants, however. He had not smoked 
all of that time. However, right now, when he finishes the book, he would want a cigarette. She would say those are not good for you, they cause cancer, but she will oblige. All she had allowed was for one match in that box, waiting for him for once he's done with the book. He pulls the last piece of paper, the last chapter that he had written out of the typewriter and puts the end with his swollen hand and then puts the script so that the Miseries Return, the title of the book, is facing the door for when Annie walks in. He's thinking to himself, can he do it? Can he actually pull it off? He goes to the floorboard, takes the lighting fluid and just spill, like spills it all over the waste bin and sort of like, I think, like in the other areas of the room. And then he goes for the cigarette box where the match is in the matchbox. And he calls for Annie, tells her that he is ready. And she's like, oh my god, are you serious? Like, are you like actually sure that you're ready? And she's like, yep, just bring the champagne. Tom Perignon. As she's about to unlock the door, he strikes the match. It's not lighting up. He does it the second time and you think like, oh my gosh, she's gonna like, fucking kill him. He lights up the match the third time and finally it works. Annie walks into the room, she sees the title of the book and he's holding the match saying it's done and now I'm going to do a little trick with it. Too bad that you will never read it. And it's the first time he has smiled in months. He plunks that match into the waste bin and then he's losing it. She's like just hurling, doing everything to save this book, shrieking not misery, you can't do the bread, you can't burn misery. She's like literally pulling the paper with her own hands. She's fully like burning herself in order to like possibly try to run out for the bathroom to try to get water on some of the pages and save some of the book. And as she turns around, he takes the typewriter and just slams it against her head. She falls onto the ground and she had fallen onto some of the burning paper so he can smell it go through it, her clothes, some of her flesh being burned. She still gets up but her clothes are now burning, her clothes are on fire. At this point she had turned around to like go at him but she trips over the typewriter and I just laughed at this point because like come on Mr. King what is this? Is this like a child's play itself where she's just like tripping over like a caricature? Why is she tripping over everything? They scuffle, they're now on the floor and he goes for the burning paper to stuff it into her mouth. This seems a bit disgusting, I'm not gonna say. Kind of the book oscillates between like me laughing and me being disgusted because as he's shoving the burning papers into her mouth he's saying suck my book until you choke, I will rape you with it, suck on it, go on and eat it all up. He just like keeps slamming the papers into her mouth. I'm like what is really necessary? Like I think we get the point. She's choking and her mouth is being burned with the book. I think we get the point. We, without the R word, okay? She gets up again somehow, she's still fucking alive, but then she trips and goes down with her head falling at an angle. He thinks she's dead and he's finally free. He's almost at the door when she opens her eyes. And this is when the book says she was as solid as he thought. She was still coming after him. So he after like a lot of tugging and pulling and her gurgling and finally like falling on top of him, he manages to get out of the room and lock it behind him. 
her fingers were still poking under the door that was locked behind him. The next thing that Paul remembers is waking up in the bathroom. So his intention was to go to the bathroom and like find other things like in the kitchen or the bathroom, like other matches to like light the whole house on fire. But he had to go back into the room and check, not if she's alive, but go to check for his manuscript because he hid it under the bed. The chunks of paper in the typewriter were fake. Or I put what if he broke the superstitious spell and finally wrote two copies. That's why he was working overtime to like have yeah, one copy that he will not burn and then the other one for Annie. Which one is it? We will never fucking know. I know, guys, but like, he fooled, he fooled, he fooled her. It was the plot twist that the movie doesn't fucking include, okay? The police officers are finally there with a search warrant, like, they finally fucking appeared, and he is screaming from the bathroom for help. Police comes in, they help him, and like, obviously he says, like, yeah, guest room, like, go in, unlock it, like, we think she's dead, I think she's fucking dead, but like, just go in, check. Police enters the guest room. There is blood, there's glass, there's burnt paper, but there is no one in that room at all. This is when I gasped. I gasped. I audibly gasped as this part of the book had happened because... <laughs> Where the fuck is she? What had happened to her? We go into a time jump. We jump nine months later. Paul is going to be walking with a limp for the rest of his life, but he will walk with a prosthesis, of course, and he started drinking again. He was drinking because he was having nightmares, he was not writing at all, this was his way of coping, and also because he was heavily going through the withdrawals after being taken off the meds that Annie was giving him. Misery's return was put on a fast track. We learned that there were millions of copies just in the first batch. And this was good, as he was unsure whether he will ever write again. He doesn't want to fictionalize himself, like obviously there are mentions of him writing about his actual experience of being a hostage and going through this, but he just doesn't feel like anybody would want to read it and he's sure as fuck doesn't want to relive it. He found out that Annie pulled out the paper out of her mouth in that house and went out through the window. Annie succumbed to her injuries inside of her barn with a handle on a chainsaw because she had plans for him. She was gonna go back into the house with a chainsaw and kill him. However, her cause of death was fractured skull. She was killed by the typewriter in the way of the poetic justice. This is the book about writing after all. Sitting in front of a blank screen, Paul recalls a small incident of a kid pushing a cart in front of a supermarket that he just went to that day. The cart had a cage in it, and inside of a cage he at first thought he had seen a cat. However, then he saw the white stripe on its tail. Pushing the cart faster, the kid was not stopping, but clearly who he was pushing or rather, what he was pushing was a skunk. Paul thought, where did it all come from? Eddie Desmond had lived in New York his whole life. 
but he had been to a zoo dozens of times. He had seen an animal like this, but had no idea how such thing could have got into his deserted road. It was a skunk. Eddie started slowly toward it. Paul was now weeping in front of his screen because he realized he was able to write again. The end. That's how the book ends, right? Let's now speak about what the movie includes that the book does not. So I think if you watched the movie and heard the recap, you will realize, although the movie adaptation is great, the book is just so much more powerful. People in the comments were not lying about this woman being crazy. So the movie had a lot of flashbacks in order for the camera cuts to be working. So like flashbacks of Paul's interactions with the agent and then like agent calling the police. The whole saga how every time he finishes a book he has a glass of champagne and a cigarette then possibly maybe he was even in this accident in the first place because of that, because he might have been a bit drunk. The book develops that plot in a way that makes you think that he finally has a hold over Annie, that he finally can manipulate her, rather than this being like a superstition that he follows every time he finishes a manuscript. Then there's the difference when it comes to point of view of the police. The book does not put us into the Sherry's perspective. We only learn about the police coming into the house when they physically show up. And even then, it's from Paul's perspective. Avoiding that point of view in the book makes it so much more horrific, as this point is to make us feel that they're doing nothing to help, rather coming back and each time not having a warrant while he's forced to finish the book. I think like that was beautifully done in such a way where you can see like the police is not doing fuck all and you're like getting frustrated and frustrated but you also see like the point is being made where he has to decide to get off the drugs and basically work to save his own life because nobody else will. Also I understand that we have this perspective in the movie just because it is a visual representation because as viewers we have to know more than Paul and like be on the edge of our seats as Annie passes the sheriff in her car multiple times. Then as we see the interview with the police chief announcing that Paul is dead and they didn't locate the body, making you think that they had actually stopped searching. And then to emphasize Annie does not follow the news and this might be the way to win this. The date night scene that drives the plot forward in the movie does not happen in the book. So that's the main difference, the drug dependence. And it's why the movie was done in one way compared to the book. In the book there's always kind of like, oh yeah, he's dependent on drugs. He does kind of plan to possibly spike some of her food, some of Annie's food to like knock her out, but he never puts that plan into action because like other things come along. In the movie, like, we see him put, like, the drugs in the set we see that he's not dependent on the drugs, and then we see that he invites her for a date night in her own house and tries to spike her drink, but, like, she spills it, so, like, that plan falls through. Anyways, as his plan to spike and his drink doesn't work in the movie, we see he continues writing, Annie and the sheriff are reading, and one night, as it's raining, Annie comes in with the pills, but she looks rough, leading to the iconic scene 
of her saying when he came there she only loved the writing part of Paul Sheldon, but now she likes the rest of him. Soon the book is going to be finished and he will want to leave, which he says that he likes it there. She pulls out a gun of her bathrobe, saying sometimes she thinks about using it. She better go now and put bullets in it. This gun will later in the movie be used as the endgame, once him and her are to finish the book and have their glasses of champagne, where there will be two bullets in the gun, one for Annie, one for Paul. The movie will tie all of the flashbacks that we have spoken about, the police point of view and him using her obsession with the writer Paul Sheldon she has now as hostage to drive the story, because the camera jumps between different people reading Misery. So the sheriff reads Paul's old work, one of his older Misery books, and makes a note of a particular quote, because he remembers seeing it somewhere else. We see Annie having road rage in the movie, as she's near the police station, and sheriff seeing her and remembering a line from Paul's book that he had also read. He goes into the library to find the archives on a criminal case, and right under a picture of Annie Wilkes, in the court he reads the quote from the Paul Sheldon book. There is a higher justice than that of a man. I will be judged by him. In the book, there's always an insinuation that she was a fan and that he kind of knew like she was somewhat of a criminal and then he learned like oh, she was a full-blown serial killer. But nothing that I have read insinuated she used something that she had read in his books as a quote when giving interviews, at least not in the book. After finding this in the archives, Sherry goes into the local shop to find out if anyone bought Paul Sheldon's books recently. Did it happen to be Mrs. Wilkes? And is there anything else odd that she bought? And the shop assistant tells her, oh, the paper. To which Sherry is like, newspaper? No, not newspaper. The typing kind of paper. So by himself, in the movie, the sheriff goes to the house, which stupid, 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 I love it when this is stupid. Sheriff is at the door, but at this point Annie manages to inject Paul, knocking him out and shoving him into the basement. The sheriff knocks on the door, says like that she might know of a Paul Sheldon, to which she starts with like his date of birth, he was born to this and that, like his parents. Funny, I have laughed, I have chuckled. He interrupts her and he like lurks around the house and here in the movie we go into the guest room and we see that the bed had been made, like everything is in pristine collection and Annie even says to the sheriff that she had been using the typewriter, that she is trying her best like to replicate his own work because he's gone but like she just can't do it the way that he does. 
wrote, the kinds of words he used, the wonderful stories he told. I spent the last four weeks trying to write like Paul Sheldon, but I can't do it right. I try and I try and I know all the words, but it's just not the same. Well, maybe it takes a while to get the hang of it. I could give you a couple of hundred pages of mine and you could tell me what you think. I'm not much of a critic. Well, I just thought. Oh, look at me. You'd think I'd never had a guest before. Would you like a nice hot cup of cocoa? No, really. I don't it's care. It's no trouble. There's some already made. So the sheriff looks around and just as he's to leave, Paul makes a sound in the basement to alert somebody else is in the house. The sheriff goes back in, but Annie is sort of like behind him and she shoots him and kills him at the door of the basement. Don't be sad, Annie says. It's beautiful. I put two bullets in my gun. We'll be together forever. But misery has to live. Paul gets his way back to the room to finish the book so that she can find out who Misery chooses as her partner, as her love interest. And he's almost done, and he needs three things. Of course, as his number one fan, she knows what they are. A cigarette, because he stopped smoking, except when he finishes a book, a match to light it, and a glass of champagne. Dom Perignon it is. You know, when I finish, I'd like everything to be perfect. I'll need three things. What things? You don't know. <laughs> I was rolling, silly. You need a cigarette because you used to smoke, but you quit, except when you finish a book and you have just one. And the match is to light it. And you need one glass of champagne. Dom Perignon. Dom Perignon. This time they're going to need two glasses, and as Annie gets out to get a second glass for her own champagne, he lights up that match, and then just as she walks in, the scuffle ensues, he burns the um, Misery's Return, and then like hits her with a typewriter, so that bit is a bit similar in the movie. They wrestle, she goes for the gun, shoots him in the shoulder, the second shot just fires in the space. He feeds her some of the charred pages, makes her trip and hit the head on the typewriter. She pretends she's dead and attacks again as he crawls out of the room. He spots a statue of a pig here. I love that for this movie, I loved it. So, like, the pig misery statue is just there on the floor again. Bit random, a bit convenient. Why is the fucking statue of a pig on the floor? And uh, he picks it up, bonks her on the head, finally killing her. So, in um, the movie, technically, she's not killed by words. She's not killed by a typewriter, but by misery herself. Love it. Love it. Hearts. Hearts all around. In the movie, the time jump is 18 months later, and we see him have a lunch with his editor, saying that in some way Annie Wilkes helped him. She asks him how does he feel about writing a non-fiction book, and he says it sounds like she's making him relive the worst weeks of his life. In the corner of his eye, he sees her, approaching with cake and a knife. Except it's a hallucination! because uh, it's just a waitress telling him that she is his number one fan. How would you feel about a non-fiction book? About what went on in that house? Gee, Marsh, if I'd have known you better, I think you were suggesting I dredge up the worst horror of my life just so we could make a few bucks. 
I thought you were over. I don't know if anyone could ever totally get over something like that. It's weird. Even though I know she's dead, I still think about her once in a while. Excuse me, I don't mean to bother you, but are you Paul Sheldon? Yes. I just want to tell you I'm your number one fan. That's very sweet of you. Now, I just have to say this, had the movie included a thumbectomy scene where, like, she used his thumb as a candle, this ending of the movie would have been a lot more powerful. It just had to be said. Had to be fucking said, but sure, he's hallucinating that he still sees her. That's powerful enough, I guess. The main difference is in the movie, Paul Sheldon is still in control by the end of it. In the book, it's very much Annie Wilkes' world, and he is just in it. The very final thoughts here, I loved both the movie and the book, because I feel like they had different writers, obviously, for the movie, and it worked. We have seen something like this done with you recently on Netflix, the stalker again, TV series where the first series on Netflix, as somebody who has read the books, I know a lot on this topic as well, the first series on Netflix follows the book to a T, like literally, like again, like this kind of thing where it's dialogue is followed, like all of that. And then they had like completely different writers for the remainder of the seasons, literally from book to almost everything is different compared to the books. And that in itself is genius. Like, I feel like here especially, like, yes, the book was genius in its own right, and then it just shows off the talent of the writers, the directors, the producers, that they have made an equally, somewhat weaker, some would say, but, like, an equally strong plot for a movie, for the visual representation of the whole story. It's a masterpiece in either form, and the only parts I didn't like are those that I mentioned, where visually the demise could have been portrayed better, and is spiraling out of control, and how that reflected on her environment, including possibly even more of the iconic lines from the book that Kathy Bates could have carried. But then I guess if you wanted him, like, in the movie, to still have some pride and not be, like, completely destroyed by the end of it, they couldn't really do this, and I also get that it would have been more of a horror if the movie did represent everything. It would be, like, a lot more gory, probably couldn't have been... I don't know if the movie is PG, actually. Probably, yes, could have had to be, like, 18-plus or something, which, I don't know, again, like, would that have worked for the 90s standards for as many people to see it as possible? Another thing that couldn't have been done as well, and why I think, like, this movie worked a lot better than Gerald's Game. In the book, Paul gets delusions a lot about, like, a phone in the house going off, like, people coming to save him, what if she died, what would happen to him, which are kind of the staple of Stephen King's books with a person being bedridden. But it can't translate to the movies, which I think why... I mean, I think Gerald's Game, the book, was nowhere near misery in terms of, like, quality or anything like that. And it is because everything was, like, this person being stuck to their own delusions and just, like, spiraling out of control. But there was nothing else happening 
in their vicinity, whereas in this book, like, there's a shit ton of, like, just psychological spiraling also happening. And what I wonder, because in Stephen King's own writing, I read about his own drug addiction that inspired that part of the book, is whether the drug dependency was excluded from the movie adaptation on purpose. So he doesn't have to deal with the on-screen portrayal of his addiction. And also, because around this time... So, the, bo the book came out in 1987, Misery. Stephen King got clean in the late 80s, so right after the book. So, in his book on writing, he said, Take the psychotic nurse in Misery, which I wrote when I was having such a tough time with dope. I knew what I was writing about. There was never any question. Annie was my drug problem, and she was my number one fan. God, she never wanted to leave. When he further spoke about Paul Sheldon and whether this character was based on himself, Stephen King said, It would be fair enough to ask if Paul Sheldon in Misery is me. Certain parts of him are. But I think you will find that, if you continue to write fiction, every character you create is partly you. Just one last bit that I had to look into, the pig. At first, I was like, why? Why was the pig named Misery? Like, what's the, what's the story behind it? Like, without looking into it, I thought of, like, the connotations that are usually associated with a pig. That it's dirty, that it's big and stocky and fat, like, everything that... Stephen King used as kind of descriptors for Annie herself, like, to, you know, show off her attributes in such a way. But no, it's purely Stephen having a dream about a fan naming an animal after her favorite character. So he was on a transatlantic flight and he wrote down the initial idea for Misery on a napkin. He wrote something along these lines. She speaks earnestly, but never quite makes eye contact. A big woman and solid all through. She is an absence of hiatus. I wasn't trying to be funny in a mean way when I named my pig Misery. No, sir. Please don't think that. No, I named her in the spirit of fan love, which is the purest love there is. You should be flattered. And the pig misery was there as he had a different ending in mind, because Stephen King, in his book, mentioned that he had originally planned for Annie to force her prisoner to write a book, which she would then bind in Paul Sheldon's skin. Suddenly, the idea of Paul Sheldon dying wasn't as crazy as I thought it was. When commenting on why he chose not to go that route, Stephen King said, It would have made a pretty good story. Not such a good novel, however. No one likes to root for a guy over the course of 300 pages, only to discover that between chapters 16 and 17, the pig ate him. But that wasn't the way things eventually went. Paul Sheldon turned out to be a good deal more resourceful than I initially thought. And his efforts to play Shehrzad and save his life gave me a chance to say some things about the redemptive power of writing that I had long felt but never articulated. Annie also turned out to be more complex than I'd first imagined her. And she was great fun to write about. And that, ladies and gents, is how Misery was born. To think that had it not have been for this transatlantic flight, for him being served a cocktail, given a cocktail napkin, to write this idea on that was just, like, fleshed out in his mind, to think that had it not been for his addictions and his own trauma, we would have never had this masterpiece. 
I don't know, I could never... What I need you to do, right, in the comments, is put your favorite Stephen King book, write a synopsis, spoil the whole shit for me, okay? This is what I like, <laughs> this is why I make these videos, because I wish there were more channels that just recap the whole book, or the whole movie. I would still read it if you convince me it's worth reading, okay? I need a psychological... I need to be scarred for life. I need to laugh at one moment and then have goosebumps the next. I need to be fucked for life. I don't like horror. I don't like sci-fi bullshit. I'd like to know that this is this is something that could happen. And I like to be scarred for life. I like not to sleep at night, you know? <laughs> it's like if it's for a word, if it's for a good book, it's worth it. That's all I'm saying. Drop your Stephen books in the comments and tell me, did you like this movie? If you watched it, did you like the book? If you read it, what were your favorite parts? What were your favorite parts? I cannot speak anymore. What were your favorite parts? Annie Wilkes. Like, she's my bestie. She's nothing wrong. She's a serial killer. She's a fictional character. <sighs> Listen, let us just sometimes... No, let us not glorify my uh, fictional characters like Annie Wilkes. She was a nurse who killed. And then she ended up, like, killing other people. She started with, like, her father. You read a book. <laughs> Why would we ever glorify anybody like Annie Wilkes? Let us glorify Stephen King. Yeah, I don't like glorifying men. But he's the one who wrote the damn book. This is my dilemma. This is what I think and then talk to myself about. No, about misery. Let us actually just glorify a man for it. Because he was the one who wrote it. He was the one that had this idea, put it on a napkin, and created a bloody masterpiece. So yes, today I will allow myself to glorify a man. I don't want to say worship a man. I don't think I will allow myself to worship a man. It's too strong of a word, okay? And I think Stephen King has enough of worshipping fans around the world for me to be like, worship. I have ever said the word worship out loud. Yeah, I think it's clear. I think it's, it's clear to everybody watching. Worship! So fucking dramatic for no reason. Worship! Why? Can you can you say war in a normal way? No, I'm just sorry. I just noticed. I always enunciate it like this. Why? Just say war in a normal, flat-pitched tone of voice. And then say worship. War. Okay, Stephen King book recommendations in the comments right now. Worship. <laughs> My ass. You never say that word again. Never say that word again.